0: We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Well, good evening. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount and uh, looking at how Jesus describes the kingdom and what's different about the kingdom of God as opposed to what the religious leaders of the day, specifically the Pharisees, had had uh, sort of laid out in front of the people, but before we jump back into the text, I wanted to thank you guys for praying. I was with uh, Mike Sheer and Charles Stolfus. we spent last week in, in Romania. Uh, we were meeting We had a, we had a meeting in uh, Istanbul on our way in about doing some training with some uh, pastors that were coming out of a closed country and would have the opportunity to potentially train there in Istanbul. And then we went to Romania where Charles and Mike taught through the book of Revelation. <clears throat> and, and at the end of that trip, we had a unique opportunity to go up into Ukraine and to visit with some of our BTCP pastors on the western side of the country, uh, not really close to the war. But uh, we met with these pastors who were taking care of refugees, that when they... Uh, one of them was telling us, we went up and, and, and we, we had an opportunity to, to, to jump on with a caravan uh, that was riding up with five vans. And, and these caravans, it was some pastors from Italy, some pastors from Germany, some pastors from Romania and us. And we, we took five vans worth of goods to this church. And, and these other pastors were driving up and lay were driving up multiple times a day into Ukraine, and they were just dropping off these shipments, and they'd bring the empty vans back and take them back in. And they were transporting mostly goods that they had collected back in Italy. <clears throat> and as they were traveling in, they filled this church up. So we have, I meant to have pictures ready, but they had a church that was mostly full of all these boxes. And then twice a week, a couple of semi-trucks were coming and collecting these boxes and taking them east into the, to the ravaged areas, to the war zone. And as we just saw this work, I mean, it was working with the efficiency of FedEx, and and just the 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 work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these churches and the faithfulness of these men and women, the, the generosity of these churches. It was an incredible thing to see, but it was also a, a just a, an eye opening thing because as we met with our BTCP partners who have been hosting refugees in their churches, they were describing their days and they get up in the morning. They go to the market to find food that they can cook. The, the, one of the churches with our translator, um, they're taking care of about 60 refugees a day. And this town Or Chernivtsi had had grown from, from 40,000 extra people two weeks ago, 50,000 extra people a week ago, and it was up to 60,000 people. And keep in mind, most of these people are transitioning through to, to seek asylum in Western Europe. So they were just there for a few days, but, but the mass was growing. And, and so this church was taking care of 60 to 80 people a day and they're preparing food. And I, we could just see the exhaustion that's starting to build with these churches and, and as they're taking care of these things. And, and so they're heroic on the one hand, but could sure use your prayers for, for relief, for uh, endurance know that the gifts that you've given to the Disaster Relief Fund, we were able to handle many of these pastors directly to be able to buy those. You know, They said the first week or two, there was nothing. The shelves were empty because everybody, sort of like we did with toilet paper here with COVID, the shelves just got emptied. Uh, But over time, they had started seeing more and more stuff on the shelves. It's expensive, but they're able to get things and provide and take care of those. So Continue to remember them in prayer. They said early in the process, people were showing up and their main needs were food because people were packing their cars full. They were showing up in town. They'd stopped through it for a few days with their families and their cars, with their belongings packed on their way to, to Romania or to one of the other European countries. Uh, but, but for the last couple of weeks, it's been people getting off buses and trains with only the clothes they've got on their back. So early on, they needed more food than clothes. Now they're needing to take care of people and you can get them clothes. So so pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine as they continue to manage this impossible situation. Let me pray. God, we thank you so much for your word, for our chance to draw together tonight as a body, uh, to look at your word, to be challenged by your word. And Lord, we want to pray for uh, the church in Romania as they continue to receive those that are misplaced, displaced, that that have no home, uh, that are having to relocate on a moment's notice. For those that have lost loved ones uh, who are fleeing from this awful war, we pray first of all for relief. We pray that you might uh, use this time, this hardship to spread the gospel, that more and more might be added to your kingdom. And so Lord, we pray knowing that you are sovereign over every molecule. We pray in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> there was a video I saw, oh, maybe a couple months ago that came across one of the social media feeds. And I watched it, and it was really a powerful video. It was Albanian, and some of you may have seen it. it I don't know how viral it went. But it, it started with a scene with a young schoolboy knocking on his schoolhouse door and the teacher invites him in, and the, the boy is late for class, so he walks up to the teacher. The teacher's got a very frustrated look, and the boy sticks out his hand. The teacher has a ruler, and he swats him on the hand. And the boy goes and sits down, coward. The next scene is the next day, the exact same scenario. Knock on the door, walk into the schoolroom, teacher's disappointed, teacher swats the hand, boy sits down, and it does it three times. The boy walks in, and, and you're just agonized when the teacher swats the boy's hand. The, the teacher's face is so frustrated. The next scene cuts away to the teacher riding his bicycle down the street, and he happens to catch across the way through a fence, and he sees this little boy, and the little boy is pushing a wheelchair. The wheelchair's got his mom who is, is, is clearly physically impaired and unable to, unable to care for herself. And the little boy on his way to school is pushing his mom in a wheelchair to her daycare facility, and the teacher um, is broken. And so the next scene cuts to the boy going into the classroom, and the teacher standing there. He's got the ruler in his hand, and the boy walks in, and he sticks his hand out. And the teacher hands him the ruler and walks over him and gives him a hug and they both burst into tears. And it's a powerful video in its simplicity. There are very few words spoken in the whole video. And the the title of the video is Don't Judge. And we've all been guilty of that, right? That we get cut off on the street and we're just angry at the person that cut us off without knowing anything about the scenario. In their lives, I remember one time, one of the kids had had an accident and I was rushing to the emergency room and I flipped my hazard lights on and the cars around me wouldn't let me around. And I knew the emotion they were feeling. Who's this jerk behind me that's so impatient, not knowing that I had a medical emergency in the car and I needed to get to a hospital. But that's what we do, right? We all have a critical attitude. Many of us do. I struggle a lot with a critical attitude critical attitude. I can have a, you know, I, I almost feel this sense of entitlement as if the world needs my opinion on everything. That I sometimes put myself in a spot where it's my responsibility to sit back and evaluate every single thing that passes in front of my eyes. And that's a, that's a disease, that's a problem, that's sin. That if, that if we're not careful, uh, that can eat us alive. So, so whether you're on the road, whether you talk to a customer service agent or a, or a, or a server in a restaurant who's having a bad day, uh, all we have to recognize that we are limited in our ability to pass accurate judgment, that, that we've got to be a people who extends mercy and assumes the best we've got to be wise. We've got to avoid hypocrisy because just as frustrated as I was in that car at the people that wouldn't let me through, I've been the person in that other car that was irritated by the jerk behind me that's in such a hurry. As we look at this text, Matthew chapter seven, verses one to six, we're gonna see what Jesus has to say about judgment. As, as first he's going to give us a sober warning uh, about ourselves. Then he's going to give us a proper procedure when we do see something that needs to be addressed. And then finally, he's going to give us some general wisdom as we seek to interact with, with those in the church and those in the world. Look at verse 1. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. Obviously, this is a widely misquoted verse in our day, right? It's used uh, broader in our culture, basically to say, live and let live. We hear this verse all the time, don't judge, and in some sort of postmodern sense that's really rooted in this idea that there's, there's no absolute, who are you to say what's right and what's wrong? I can make my own call. It reminds you of the book of Judges that that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In our culture, we're increasingly being pressed in to, to say there's really nothing that's wrong. And oftentimes they'll point to this. They'll say, God is love. And they'll say, Jesus said, don't judge. And it's really a pretty big misquote of what Jesus is actually saying here. Jesus is saying, judge not, lest you be judged. The word judge is crino, and 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 this word can mean to analyze or evaluate uh turn to galatians chapter 6 if you got your bible in galatians chapter 6 paul says in verse 1 paul says brothers if anyone is caught in any transgression you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So clearly, Jesus is not contradicting the rest of Scripture. Clearly, Jesus is not saying, hey, there's nothing you should ever stick into, that, that we are called at times to evaluate that we're called at times to analyze. In Hebrews 3.13, the author of Hebrews said, "...exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin." Throughout the New Testament, we understand that, that the Christian faith is not a faith to be lived as an individual that we live it in the context of community. And all throughout the New Testament, we see the body of Christ coming together, bearing one another's burdens. And there are times that we need to speak into each other's lives, as Paul talks about here, as the author of Hebrews talks about here. First John four one, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have come into the world. As believers, we learn the Word of God, we know the Word of God, that we can discern truth from error. error. What Jesus is saying here is not to turn that off, to just say anything goes, to say, hey, I'm just so humble I can't even tell you the difference between right and wrong. That's in a lot of ways the false piety of our day. The false piety of our day basically says, hey, anything goes. Who am I to say that anything is wrong? But the Bible makes it really clear that there are certain things we have to step in and to say, no, that is not okay. So what is it that Jesus is saying when he says, don't judge? Well, if, if we go on, he says, don't judge lest you be judged that the idea here is the the other range of meaning for this word is is the idea of condemning or avenging. And and we realize that to condemn or to to avenge, that's God's work. So so Jesus is, is basically saying, don't do that thing that God will ultimately do. That you're to evaluate you're to analyze, we'll look in a few verses at how we do that. But, but basically what Jesus is saying here is, hey, you don't usurp God's authority in the lives of men. It's not your place to evaluate someone's eternity. It's not, your, it's not yours to evaluate the value of someone's life. It's not you to avenge wrongdoing. It's not to you to ultimately condemn. You won't be sitting on the throne or you don't get an early access throne to be able to sort people. Don't judge lest you be judged. Why can't we do it? Well, first of all, because we're limited. We're not omniscient. Remember... How much time Jesus spent in the previous chapter, back in chapter six, talking about how oftentimes our external actions don't match our internal motivations, how he's so much more concerned with our internal motivations. Well, I know myself, and I'm guessing most of you are like this. If I sat in a place of judgment, about 90% of my evaluation would be external actions because I can't see the heart. So first of all, I would probably be prone to to give some people that are doing externals a pass because they're doing the right thing, not knowing that their very hearts are corrupt. Or I may not actually appreciate what's going on with their external struggles without understanding what's going on in their heart. So I'm limited, I'm not omniscient like God, so I'm not in any way qualified to sit in judgment over my brother or my sister. So, so I don't stand at the, as the ultimate judge uh, because I tend to look at the externals only. And so I think what Jesus is talking about here is in a sense, he's talking about the, the ultimate type of judging that we do. But second of all, I think he's just talking about a general sense of fault finding, of measuring people of constantly feeling the need to evaluate what's going on. You know, Spurgeon, I was reading one of his uh, devotionals on this, and, and he was seeing it almost as a, as a thing when he, when he goes on in verse 2. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. That's scary. Now, I think ultimately this is a divine passive, and it's talking about God actually judging us based on the judgment we pass on to others. If I truly understand the nature of the gospel, I'm going to be humble and meek in front of others. I'm going to be a merciful guy because I realize my own need. But, but Spurgeon kind of made the point that, you know, we all know people who are externally really critical people. And we can almost delight when they have a downfall themselves. So, so it's almost the sense of the harsher you are with people, the harsher people will be with you. But really, I think what Jesus is saying here is ultimately God's going to judge you according to the way that you judged others. That that there's a sense um, that that, that what he's talking about here is is the way, sort of the the smug nature, the mindset that comes with judging people, that God's going to turn that back upon us as, as kind of our own condemnation. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 2, right? The very fact that you understand uh, what's going on, the very fact that you can pass judgment on another is actually a conviction towards you. What's the old saying about for every finger you point, there's three pointing back at you? The fact that you have the ability to judge somebody else speaks to the reality that you know the truth. So you better be consistent with how you're living if you're going to be pointing the finger at someone else. So he says, judge not lest you be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure, it will be measured to you. You know, I think the reality is this text should set us kind of in a, in a mindset and with an understanding. Uh, that, that we don't come to others with a superior attitude, that we don't come criticizing people without a loving concern. And a lot of times that loving concerns the difference, right? That, that if I come and I just sit back smugly and I judge what's going on, that's not of God. But if I come to someone with a loving concern, it's, it's the same thing from the Lord's, from the model prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive others. That it's, that it's a natural flow that out of the forgiveness that I've experienced, I give it to others. To come to someone and say, I love you enough to talk about this thing. It's not loving to set back that I love you enough to talk about this thing, and I know at some point you're going to need to love me enough to come talk to me about this thing. But I don't do it with a smug attitude. I don't do it with a sense of superiority. I don't do it with a lack of love. That it comes from a place of humility and of understanding who God made me to do. It's not driven by anger. It's not driven by dislike. When I was in college once... Uh, I was on a Campus Crusade summer project and we went away and, and it was the first time we had ever been taken through biblical, you know, confrontation. The idea of what well, we're about to talk about here, removing the log from your own eye, that going to someone. And I remember kind of like the way you like to play with a new toy when you find it, there was a guy at the, at the camp that came to me and said, Chris, we need to talk. I was like, okay. And, and it was clear he was going to confront me about something. And it was... It was weird because he came and we sat down and he said, I just need to confess. I don't like you very much. I was like, okay. He's like, yeah, I just really struggle with, with the way you carry yourself. And Like he never confronted me about any sin. It was just like a dagger to the chest. I was like, man, I can't fix a lot of that stuff. But it wasn't what this text is talking about. Like, like this guy was driven with just a general sense of frustration at who I was. Like, had he come with some specific sin, we could have had something to talk about. But I fear he just kind of came out of a heart of, of bitterness and anger. And, and, and that's not what we're talking about. That, that we don't go to someone because we're jealous. That we don't go to someone with an attempt to take them down or to diminish them. We don't gossip to other people about this thing that we've seen. Isn't that something we do a lot? Hey, did you notice that so-and-so... And it's sort of an attempt to diminish them. Did you see that they were doing this or they were doing that? That's not love. That's judging. That's the critical spirit that Jesus is talking about here. You know, I always try to think, if this thing, if I'm gonna share it with a third person, is it something that I would feel comfortable for someone else to share with a third person? Am I really, you know, the old pray for them because of this? What's my motivation in this? That it's constructive. It's not a retribution. That my critical spirit, uh, that I've got to be mindful to turn off the constant evaluation about things that aren't my responsibility. I've got to turn off my tendency to take other people's inventories, what we used to say back in Tennessee. That, that I'm not here to take their inventory if it's not my responsibility. I've got to, to, to be mindful to turn off the arrogance uh, that assumes uh, this, this thing needs my input. Why, do, why am I involved like that? So, lest you be judged, what if that same standard is turned back on me? So, so most likely, when he says, do not judge, in an active sense, to to switching to the passive, lest lest you be judged, points out the fact that God is doing the judgment. Uh, The result of our unmerciful judgment will be unmerciful judgment towards us. In James chapter 2, verse 13, James says, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who is not merciful. Back in the Beatitudes that Mike taught us several weeks back, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And he says uh, there in verse three, in in verse two, he says, with the measure of, you use, it will be measured back to you. This became sort of a proverb, but the idea was, was when you're selling grain, whatever, whatever scoop you use to measure out the grain is the same scoop we're going to use to measure out the payment. We don't use a smaller scoop to measure out the grain and a bigger scoop to measure out the payment for your benefit, it's gonna be fair. So if you pour out judgment in this extent, that same measure is gonna be used against you coming back at you. It's sobering, it's sharp, it should wake us up. It should make me say, stop, wait a minute. Do I want this turned back on myself? Verse three. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's on your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in my own eye? You hypocrite. I think of a scene here going to to an eye doctor for surgery, and you walk in the door, and he's got a big log out of his eye, and you need him to remove a little thing. I mean, you wouldn't stay very long. And I think Jesus is... He's speaking hyperbolically to make a point that, that I think the audience probably laughed at this point because it's an absurd situation. And it's the idea that a lot of us can come to with confrontation. It's the idea that, that we've got to be aware of our own weakness. I think when, G, when he says, uh, <clears throat> go take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye, we realize that repentance is actually a gift from the Lord. When, when Luther to, at the re, in the Reformation nailed his 95 theses on the Wittenberg door, the first theses, the first thesis, I guess, said, when, "When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, "Repent," he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance." that a lot of times in our day, we present the gospel as if it's this one time, repent, say this prayer, you're a Christian, move on. The reality is, biblical Christianity recognizes the need for ongoing repentance. Not as a condition of our salvation, but as a reality that's what's happening in our heart. That we are continually being made aware of our sin and confessing it and turning from it. That that's the life, that's the breath of a Christian is to recognize a constant need, a constant need of God's mercy. Romans 2.4 says, do you not presume on the riches of this kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. A lot of times we can think of repentance as a hard word or as a, as a, as a heavy word. But Paul says there in, in Romans chapter two, repentance is actually the kindness of God. That it's his mercy, that it's his grace that brings you to repentance, that makes you aware of your sin. When I was, when I was flying Uh, we were landing in Romania and there was a guy that was uh, in the seat beside me and we had struck up a conversation. He was going in straight up to Ukraine to do work. And um, he was with a, it was an environmental organization and they were going in to um, just to to do whatever they had. They had taken like 20 bags. They had checked the maximum number of bags they could and they just had bags full of, of food and clothes and just everything. And so we... He, he was dressed, um, you know, he had a tie eyed shirt. He had long hair, long beard. Uh, it was very uh, progressive, I guess you could say, as we were talking. And, and as I started sharing the gospel, we started, you know, he, he started out by saying, you know, it, it, when I said I was a pastor or we were going to train pastors, he stuck his fist out and gave me a fist bump. And I said, what's your spiritual background? He was like, well... He said, I have a lot of respect for pastors. You know, I, I've been around pastors a lot. I think religion brings a lot of good to our society and, you know, typical stuff. And, and when I shared the gospel with him, as we got to the nature of sin, he sort of recoiled. And his big idea was just that, you know, I'm just trying to be a good person. And I said, but what about your sin? He's like, well, I just think, you know, I, I think I, I just have a hard time believing that God would look at my life and understand how good I'm trying to be and that he would have a problem with me. And I said, but brother, God is holy. And, and I talked for a little bit about the nature of God's holiness, about his complete separation from sin, his inability to be around sin. And, and he was like, yeah, yeah, I kind of understand that, but I just have a hard time believing that God could be, you know, so unkind, basically. He was speaking in a real loving language, but it really wasn't loving at all. That, that he said, basically, as, as we went back and I, and I started talking through the, the fall in Genesis 3, he's like, wait, stop. He said, I just choose to live on the first two pages. And I was like, wow, I've never actually heard it put that way. But he's like, yeah, you know, so I don't eat any meat because God gave the flower, the, every plant in the garden except the tree. So I just, I choose to eat only vegetables because I can't imagine eating another soul. And, and he kept talking about animals like people. And, and I pressed him on that a little bit. I said, so are you giving animals personhood? And, and he said, not really, but I just can't imagine damaging or hurting anything intentionally that God created. I said, okay, okay. So let's get back to this first, first two pages thing. And he just basically said, you know, his worldview was that God put Adam and Eve Adam and Eve, in the garden and just told them to enjoy life and to do good. And basically everything that kind of came after that is just a corruption. And, and, and the more I talk, because this was about a four-hour flight, so the more we kind of just talk, the more I realize, man, I'm, I'm against a wall here. He just does not realize the need or appreciate the need to repent. And and this sort of hit me. Repentance is truly a gift from the Lord. Have you guys ever been around someone who who you can see from the outside that they're doing wrong and it's clear, but but they just basically step back and say, hey, you know what, that's just who I am. That's just my personality. That's just... That's just this or that's just that and they just make an excuse. The Holy Spirit convicts us and enables us to see our own sin and that's a gift. And we need to repent and to acknowledge when we're wrong. And I think everything Jesus is talking about here is about that humble spirit that comes with awareness of my sin. That it's only when I recognize how much of a problem I have. It's only at a point when I repent myself and recognize my own sin that now I'm able to go with a proper posture to my brother or my sister and say, hey, let me help you with that speck because I know I've got some specks too and I need you to help me. That's the spirit of confrontation that we see biblically. That's what it means to love our brothers and sisters, is to go to them in kindness and gentleness with a heart of restoration. C.S. Lewis talked about this. He has an essay on forgiveness, and I'm going to read kind of a longer chunk here because I think he's got a great point. He says, It seems to me that we often mistake, make a mistake about God's forgiveness of our sins, in the forgiveness we're told to offer other people. Take first about God's forgiveness. I find that when I'm thinking about asking God to forgive me, I am often in reality asking Him to do something quite different. I'm asking Him not to forgive me, but to excuse me. There's all the difference in the world between forgiving and excusing. Forgiveness says, yes, you have done this thing, but I accept your apology. I will never hold it against you, and everything between us two will be exactly as it was before. That's what we experience when God forgives us. If one was not really to blame, then there's nothing to forgive. In that sense, forgiveness and excusing are almost opposites. Of course, in dozens of cases between God and man or between one man and another, there's a mixture of the two, forgiveness and excuses. Part of what first seemed to be the sin turns out to be really nobody's fault, and it's excused. The bit that's left over is forgiven. If you had a perfect excuse, you wouldn't need forgiveness. If the whole of your actions needed forgiveness, then there was no excuse for it. The trouble is what we call asking God's forgiveness very often in reality consists in asking God to accept our excuses. What leads us into this mistake is the fact that there's usually some amount of excuse, some extenuating circumstance, right? That that we've usually rationalized our sin in our mind before we do it. So we feel like on the flip side, there's an excuse for why we did what we did. We're so very anxious to point these things out to God and to ourselves that we're apt to forget the very important thing. That is the bit left over, the bit that was without excuse. The bit which excuses don't cover. The bit which is inexcusable, but not, thank God, unforgivable. And if we forget this, we go away imagining that we have repented and been forgiven when all that's really happened is that we've satisfied ourselves with our own excuses. They may be very bad excuses. We're all too easily satisfied with ourselves. And there are two remedies for this danger. One is to remember that God knows all the real excuses very much better than we do. If there are real extenuating circumstances, there's no fear that he will overlook them because God is just, right? If there's really an excuse, God already knows about it before you even make the excuse. So you can rest assured that that's covered. Often he must know the many excuses that we never even thought of. And before, therefore, humble souls will, after death, have the delightful surprise of discovering that on certain occasions they sin much less than they thought. That's a pleasant thought. All the real excusing he will do what what will he have gotten to take him in his inexcusable bit But the sin we're only wasting our time talking about the parts Which can be excused when you go to a doctor to show him the bit that's wrong say a broken arm It would be a waste of time to keep on explaining that your legs and your throat and your eyes are all right You'll be mistaken in thinking so anyway if they're really right the doctor knows that already and so he goes on and he says the second remedy is really and truly believing in the forgiveness of sin. That's a struggle for me. I know it's a struggle for a lot of you guys. Realizing that God actually did forgive your sin. A great deal of our anxiety is to make excuses comes from not really believing in it. This is what we talked about a few weeks ago that, that oftentimes when we come to sin, we want to pat somebody on the back and say, It's okay. When the reality is the gospel says, no, it's not okay. It's not anywhere close to okay, but God is good and he forgives. And you can rest assured that Jesus's blood paid for your sin and you confess your sin, he forgives you. That's the good news. So, so, so he goes on in this article and he talks about the problem we have with forgiving people is what we typically do in our own lives we accept the excuses too easily we justify our sin we say it's okay because x y and z then our own lives we're prone to accept excuses easily but in the lives of other people we tend to not accept them easily enough we we let ourselves off the hook a lot more than we're willing to let someone else off the hook so with regard to my own sin Lewis says that that with our own sin, the reality is the excuses aren't nearly as good as you think they are. And when we think about other people and their sins against me, the reality is their excuses are probably a lot better than you think. And so it's really a lot of this humility that we bring in our interaction with people that helps us understand how that we go about confronting sin. He says he, he concludes the article, he said, this is hard. It's perhaps not so hard to forgive a single great injury. That, that something big happens, we can forgive that. But he says to forgive the in, incessant provocations of daily life, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son. How can we do it? He says, only I think by remembering where we stand, by meaning our words when we say our prayers each night, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We are offered forgiveness on no other terms. This isn't an option for us. This isn't merit badge five. This is basic Christianity. Do you believe it? You must forgive not to earn God's love, because it's the only response to the gospel we have. To refuse it is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. There is no hint of exception, and God means what he says. You know, so so we realize the bar is high here, that that there is a place and a time I need to evaluate and to help my brother and sister, that I need to go help them remove this speck to deal with this sin that maybe I see and can help them with. But that has to be from a posture of understanding who I am in Christ, not from a superior point of let me take care of your life, let me, O wise one, help you, but it comes from a humble posture that understands who I am. I'm not here because I'm worthy. I'm here because I'm your friend, because I love you, because I understand the gospel, and I can't let you keep doing this thing that brings death and destruction. I love you too much. So he says, take the speck out of your own eye, Uh, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You know, this is a nice hermetically sealed truth. The reality is we live in a world that doesn't always work out, you know. So we can have the purest perspective and we can apply this verse perfectly. But sometimes whether it's sharing the gospel with someone on a plane, whether it's sharing the gospel into our community, whether it's cults that knock on our door, the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormons that come knocking on our door and want to talk to us about Jesus, we come across people who hate our message. And so what's interesting here in in this sermon, Jesus doesn't leave us in midair he doesn't leave us in the lofty ideal. Look at verse 6. Do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. You know, the idea, don't give the dogs possibly holy food. Dogs will eat anything And if you're not feeding them what they actually want, they'll actually turn on you and growl at you when you're feeding them. These are not domesticated dogs Jesus would have been talking about. They're wild dogs. And you come to them with the wrong kind of food, they're just as liable to snap at you because it's not what they wanted. What value is a pearl to a pig? He would much rather have an acorn or a... I mean, anything that's edible... But a pearl means nothing. He's just going to trample it underfoot. And so Jesus is saying here, hey, there are going to be people that are going to reject this message. So whether it's in the broader sense of the message, you know, remember the Sermon on the Mount, part of the audience here and part of the big group he's speaking to are the Pharisees and the Jews who should have known the message. They should have read the prophets. They should have read the law. They should have been looking forward to Jesus, but they didn't. They've rejected Him. They've scoffed at Him. They're going to crucify Him. Your responsibility is to not make sure everybody hears this message infinitely. The reality is there will be scoffers. Chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 14 Back in verse 13, if a house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. If it's not worthy, let the peace return to you. In verse 14, he said, if anyone does not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. We're going to see the same thing happen uh, in 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 Acts. In Acts 13, but the Jews incited devout men of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they went to Iconium. It's, it's similar to, to Proverbs 9:8, when the author of Proverbs says, Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. This isn't saying, man, if you share the gospel with someone and they reject it, you're done with them. You know, I went to Ecuador a couple months ago. And a misapplication of this text, imagine if when the, the Waodani had killed the, the five missionaries, if Rachel Saint and Elizabeth Elliot hadn't committed their lives to going back and ministering. You see, the reality is those those Waodani hadn't rejected the gospel. And these women went and committed their lives work so that now we've got a BTCP class and just started a new class with over seventy students just last week. Because of the faithfulness of this woman. So, so what Jesus is not saying here is, hey, if, if you're sharing the gospel, you, you know, all you got to do is throw a track at them and you're done. He's talking about the idea, though, of, of a rejection that comes with scorn and contempt, a hardening of the gospel. And he's saying, hey, your responsibility, you present the gospel And if they scoff at you, if they reject you, you don't continue to need to go back and and try to win the battle. You're you're dragging the gospel through the mud, basically, if you just turn it into a a brawl, to a fight, to a scoffer. I'll spend as long as I want if we're going to have meaningful conversation about the gospel and if you're seeking. But you start mocking the gospel, you start presenting to me falsehoods about the person of Christ, as some of the cults do, then, then, then my work is done. And I, think, and I think there's a tinge of this. I think this is primarily about the gospel of the kingdom, but I think there's a tinge of this that fits in the context with the idea that if you're going to a brother about sin in his life and he is continually scoffing you and rejecting you, there's a point at which you've been faithful to do what you're supposed to do and you continue to love that's what Matthew 18 is going to say, right? Is we're going, to, we're going to eventually treat him like a Gentile. But there's not a sense in which we throw our hands back with any sense of superiority. It's just a sense of, I'm going to move on where the gospel will be heard. And so as we think about this message, what does it mean? How do we apply it in our hearts? I think it first begins with a humble attitude. That daily, the gospel, receiving the gospel wasn't this one time, peculiar moment where you and I, most of us can point to dates when we first received the gospel, and that's a good thing. But realize that, that that wasn't a day that I punch on a calendar and say, I'm done now. That I continually live my life aware of my need before the Lord, of my need for repentance, of a need for his grace. And as I do that, now when I look at people around me, the people in my life, the people I love, then I'm slow to say, let me help. And when I go to someone, I'm going to evaluate my own heart and make sure I'm not doing the exact same thing or some bigger sin in my life. That I'm not lashing out at my brother because I'm guilty of something bigger myself. And as we do that the body of Christ grows and flourishes and our community strengthens and we set ourselves apart in a a completely cross-cultural way. You want to talk about something that would be attractive to the crazy world around us. What if we actually lived this out in the context of community with love and holiness? I just can't imagine The the, the Sermon on the Mount is basically the elevation of the gospel to the point that we can attain. But it's it's creating the kingdom. It's it's a picture of the kingdom that we will live in. And so the question is, can we evaluate our own hearts? Can we love our brothers and sisters? Can we live in community, committed to one another, walking humbly before the Lord? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that challenges us. It penetrates our heart. It it shows us where we fall short. And Lord, we are aware of our sin. We are aware of our weakness. And Lord, I pray for each of us here that that we would go away from here to spend time and evaluate our heart, to confess unconfessed sin and to repent, to turn away from it, that we might walk with you, that we might love one another more effectively, that we might be the church. So Lord, we thank you that you extend such mercy to us that we don't deserve. And we pray in your son's name, amen.